This is episode 49 of Cinescope, and if come from inside you, always write one. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Don Shanahan to talk about one of our favorite films, The Karate Kid. Don, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing really good, Chad. Thank you for having me very, very much. Um, I know this is kind of short notice for both of us, but uh, it was a joy to come back and see this film. I hadn't seen it in a long time, and it was uh, a nice DVD to blow the dust off of the shelf for and put in the player yesterday. So um, looking forward to it. I think you picked a, a spot-on film to do, like you said, kind of American values, and I think this is a great place where that's going to work. For sure. And I know you from the Feel and Film guys, you know, Patrick and Aaron and your involvement with them. So how about you tell us just a little bit more about yourself, what you do, all that good kind of stuff. Sure. Um, I, I, I connect to you through the, the Feel and Film guys. Uh, they asked me, um, they were recruiting for some bloggers back in the winter. And uh, I kind of answered a call kind of stumbling into their podcast stuff. I met their work through Blaine Grimes from Real World Theology. And um, he also does a nice little podcast and all that. So, um, no, I, I hitched on to them and I kind of have this little brand of things I do um, where my site and my reviews are on um, everymoviehaslesson.com. And uh, by day, I'm a school teacher. I'm an elementary school teacher. So um, I kind of look at the world, or at least as much as I've been writing about it for the last uh, seven years, I've been looking at the world with that lens in mind. So um, when, I write, when I write a movie review, I always try to think of the life lessons you can learn in a particular film, whether from the serious or the farcical. So that's kind of the, the hook or the niche of which I write. So um, uh, I, I write for my particular website, everymoviehaslesson.com. Uh, I had previously wrote for examiner.com before that site folded up a year ago. So uh, by day, I get to be that guy, but by night, I get to be uh, the movie critic and writer. Um, I'm a press credential carrying film critic here in Chicago. So um, that's nice, be able to kind of get the gets and see things early and all that good stuff like that. And to, you know, sit two seats down from Richard Roper or three seats down from Michael Phillips and, and to kind of gravitate in that scene is kind of fun as a in, a in a busy town in a busy city and all that. And uh I'm um, one of the directors and co-founders of the Chicago Independent Film Critics Circle, where we are kind of um, we're kind of the second critics group in the city. The Chicago Film Critics Association is kind of the big wigs and all that, but um, uh, myself and a few like-minded people kind of wanted to do a, another organization that um, kind of champion film criticism a little bit, but also wanted to kind of do it in the voice of diversity, not just diversity in terms of um, style of films we watch, because we really are trying to aim to be um, to kind of shine, shine a lot of independent films because a lot of the big wig critics next door to us in town, you know, see the big stuff, but they don't really kind of put a, put a nice little shine on the little stuff. So myself and a few others kind of started this and we were trying to aim for um, diversity, like we said in the film, but also in the kind of critics we have, you know, so um, not just print journalism, but we want to, you know, we've been trying to embrace and and really seek out and recruit uh, podcasters and video essayists and, you know, maybe do it yourself kind of self-made people who aren't writing for the Chicago Tribune or the or big time newspapers. So that's kind of the involvement and in business I've gotten myself into doing this movie thing for the last uh, better part of a decade. So good times and good stuff. And um it keeps me busy, let me tell you. So, yeah. Wow, all of that is excellent. I 
didn't know you were a school teacher, believe it or not. I am actually oh, yeah. uh, from the field of education as well. I am a music educator. Nice. So I'm still substituting at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Spent a lot of time in el- uh, elementary schools. But yeah, yeah. that's very cool uh, that we're coming sort of from a, a similar perspective in the workforce. Oh, yeah. I mean, I when I um I used to do the whole movie review thing for my high school newspaper and college newspaper. And, and um, I gave it up because, you know, you graduate high school and you graduate college. But uh, um, years later, uh, at, while being a school teacher, about seven, eight years into the job, I discovered Facebook, like many people did about, a, you know, eight, nine, ten years ago, and uh, ran into old high school classmates and college classmates who always wondered and asked, like, hey, Don, do you, do you still do movie stuff? Because I was always kind of the movie guy, you know, back in the dorm room in college, where I was the guy with the Hall, you know, all the VHSs and DVDs that everyone would come by and borrow. I worked at the movies, you know, the video store in town and college and all that. And uh, so I was always that guy. And they, I said, no, I, I, you know, I kind of had to grow up and be a school teacher. So they're like, you, you should write again. I was really, I loved your reviews in the papers. You should do something different. And uh, do you know what a blog is? And and I learned from the ground up all that stuff of all that, you know, of making a site and putting a site together and, and taking it from where it started on Blogger to where it is in Squarespace now. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun double life to lead. That's for sure. That's awesome. And uh, you do have that website, everymoviehasalesson.com. We'll give you a chance to plug that and other things later. But I, I think we should start to uh, start heading into the movie review territory. How about oh, you? Please, uh, by all means. Yeah. Great. So real quick, before we get to that, I just want to give a reminder of everybody. There are three weeks left until the giveaway, which I will go into in more detail at the end of the episode. So if you haven't heard the the giveaway spiel yet, stick around and you'll find out how to enter that later. And with that, let's transition into our discussion over The Karate Kid, not the 2010 remake, the original 1984 version. And now we're talking. Yes, it was released on June 22nd of 1984. So we just passed its what, 33rd anniversary? That's insane. Mm-hmm. It was directed by the late John G. Avildsen, who uh, unfortunately died just a few weeks ago, uh, I think right. June 16th or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I was looking earlier. He directed Rocky, The Karate Kid Parts 2 and 3, Lean on Me, Rocky 5, and Inferno. Side so note, he was born two miles from me in Oak Park, Illinois, right? We're not far from where I am here. Oh, really? Wow. So did he work a lot in the Chicago area? Do you know? Um, I'm trying to look up his biography and how long, if he was just born there, if he grew up, you know, spending his time out in the West and things like that. But uh, that's a thumbnail I'll have to dig up a little later. But yeah. Cool. The movie was written by Robert Mark Kamen, and the music was by Bill Conti, who also worked on the first three Rocky films and Rocky V and Rocky Balboa, as well as Bad Boys, the second and third and the fourth films in this series and Rookie of the Year and Inferno. This movie stars Ralph Macchio, Noriyuki, or Pat Morita, as you normally known, Elizabeth Shue, William Zabka, Martin Cove, and Randy Heller. So how about you share with us, what was your first experience with this movie that you remember? Oh, gosh. Um, see, when, when, you, when I looked at the notes and, and thought about that, I, I can't per se remember exactly when I saw this film. Um, I would have been five years old in 1984, so I definitely didn't see it in the theater. Um, there's a good chance I saw it um, like at a friend's house, maybe when I was eight or 10 years old, you know, so four or five years later where it was a popular thing. Um, I remember um, the sequels more than I remember the original, and at least in terms of seeing them firsthand, maybe when they came out and stuff like that. So I remember you know, just loving it then, you know, just, just the, the, the little guy who's picked on and all the themes with all that. So I probably saw it as a preteen, you know, with friends or through friends. What about yourself? 
I, like you, don't remember the first time I watched it. And that, that's a pretty common trend with most people. There are these movies that are considered classics and, you know, they've just always been around. And so we don't really think about the first time we might have seen it if we remember. So I'm same with me. It's one of the earliest movies I remember owning on DVD as a kid. And I, I actually had the novelization as a kid. Okay. Which is strange, I know, but I had the novelization, novelization of this one and for the second one, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I probably read the novelization for the second one more than I ever saw the movie. I, I saw, I've seen Karate Kids 2 and 3, I think maybe once a piece. Same with maybe Next Karate Kid as well. Um, right. This is the one that is the Karate Kid of my childhood. And I watched it oh, yeah. many, many times. I didn't have a whole lot of dvds and movies when i was younger like i do now but it, it it's just the perfect summer movie you know i've actually been itching to watch this one for a long time and now the timing just seemed perfect because it's this perfect summer movie it, it expresses these ideals of sort of american not patriotism but idealism of of pursuing your dreams and proving yourself i agree with you now has your opinion on the film changed seeing it as a kid and then, and then seeing it now I don't know if it's changed so much, but I think I definitely look at it a little bit differently. Same here. You know, just um, I, identifying it then, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a small town Midwestern gravel road farm kid. So um, I get to live in the city now, which is cute and all of that. But um, like I, I never went to New Jersey. I never went to California. I, they're not pretty blonde girls that look like the shoe where I'm from. So like it was more the what's karate and what's it all like? It was just such a different world for me. I know as a kid where seeing it older, it was became, it became easier to identify with it as a teen and just the, the problems and the bullies and the things like that, where those themes pinged more than geography, location, and, and activity more than anything. Yeah, especially as a kid, I watched it more for the karate and more for the just the, oh, yeah. the, the fun things in it rather than the ideas expressed. And I, mm -hmm. I still enjoy those fun things now as an adult, but it's the the themes and the the character relationships and the the growing of Daniel throughout the film that I really latch on to. Absolutely. One thing I noticed that that changed for me was um I didn't think anything of like I I wasn't keying into like the dating and the courtship with the Elizabeth Shue character. I remember as a kid, whereas now you know it's such a huge threat of the film that I never gave it really much that credit for. You're like, oh, let's. Let's watch the, you know, the, the Pat Morita stuff and, and get to the karate. I don't know when, you know, there's love stuff in the boom boxes and the beaches and all that. So I, I tell you what, upon repeat viewings, I noticed more of that and appreciated more of that. Yeah. And I really like their relationship. I like Elizabeth Shue a lot. She replaced uh, Claudia Wells as Jennifer in Back to the Future 2 and 3. And between those three films, those two and this one, those were my big Elizabeth Shue experiences. And Oh, see, my, see mine, was, mine was cocktail. Oh, she's so damn hot in cocktail, <laughs> you know, so, and then the years on where she just became this, you know, always a good presence and, and sometimes a sultry presence in different movies. But my, my Elizabeth Shue memory is cocktail is waterfalls and, and pina coladas. So, oh, yeah, that's the good stuff there. <laughs> I've not seen that one, but I'll, I'll have to check oh, them out. It's a, it's, a, it's a cheesy Tom Cruise 80s classic. And if you like Elizabeth Shue, I don't think she sparkled any better than she has in a film like that. So. Well, very cool. What about the story here do you latch on to? Just story ideas any, or even cinematography and the way the film is approached? Well, I, I really like, um, especially looking at it now and with this idea of the 4th of July and American ideals, um, what I really like about it 
looking deeper is um the teen kind of the teen angst angle or the the american dream through the eyes of youth kind of portion where this is a kid who just wants to belong wants to have something to do wants to have an activity he can kind of hang his hat on wants a little bit of victory i think every teen and kid wants to be a winner more than a loser so i think that story really really shines um i know uh, um about five six years back on my website or actually for examiner.com i wrote a series of articles called um movies that epitomize the american dream and i kind of took a different um it was about an eight-part series where um i took different ideals of the american dream whether it's patriotism and soldiers or if it's um self-made men or businessmen or riches and things like that so you you cover everything from the godfather you do athletics like rocky but um uh, where I slotted Karate Kid was um, in the the American Dream through the eyes of youth, right there next to like Rebel Without a Cause, where you know just what Daniel is trying to find and get all movie, whether it's that respect angle or it's that toughness angle, or even if it's get the girl. Um, I really enjoyed his angle there as something I gravitated to. I think if there's a second thing in there, it's the immigrant story. You know, it's it's what it's Pat Morita's backstory and how. Um, uh, just the, the quintessential, you know, little, you know, small man with a big background who does a very small little thing. You know, he's just a maintenance man in an apartment building, but he has this rich character and rich history that we we dive into just little bits at a time that are that are just fascinating. Where it always reminds me that that old man you see in a park bench or that person you pass by in the street could have a history we don't know about. And I always find that fascinating when you, when you meet interesting people like that, you always wonder well, where were the roots to all that things that made them interesting. So those two angles for me stood out the most story or otherwise. I definitely latched more onto the Pat Morita, Mr. Miyagi stuff in this viewing than I ever had before in previous viewings. When I was a lot younger, I, I definitely realized, Oh, he's lost his wife and his son. Okay. Well, this time I picked up more on the, almost a, the racial side of things where this was, this took place during world war two when uh, Japanese Americans were placed in internment camps and locked up and kept out of society. And so he talks about in that scene where a doctor didn't come presumably because she was Japanese and they weren't the priority. Exactly. So that that was in a small element that I just hadn't found in previous viewings. I agree. That that and I I thought nothing of it as a kid, but now that you you, you grow and you learn the history of Japanese internment and how how big of a black eye that is on on not just our country but just that that sliver of history where yeah, it it makes something so much more appreciable. Now, the way the movie opens, I, I love how we sort of go on this journey with Daniel. So we see from the very beginning, the road trip across America. And his mom is promising that Cali won't be so bad, that they'll have a pool that they can hop in first thing in the morning, and that uh, beyond anything else, we're not moving into a dump. So we're, we're going across America, we're seeing these great sights and these beautiful mountains and these deserts and all this kind of stuff. And he finally gets there. We get lots of this build up and then it's exactly what he was fearing either moving into a dump the pool is half empty and we experience that disappointment with daniel just a little bit and throughout the film we get the promise of friends the promise of a girl and those are ruined too after that beach scene where man things just aren't going well for this kid and you really latch on to him and he becomes a sympathetic character pretty immediately aside from the fact that he's obviously our protagonist right and I, I liked how, um, especially for its time, you know, I think we we kind of came out of um, 
in 1984, you're, you, it's just a you put Ralph Macchio's Danielson character against maybe Matthew Broderick's Ferris Bueller character, and you see completely two completely different experiences in high school. Like I didn't take a single aspect of the Karate Kid to feel like a John Hughes film at all. You know, it felt just different. Where that was a different, you know, lens taken to high school, whereas the prevailing style of the day was you know fast times at richmond high or something from john hughes so i appreciated that it was a, just a different way of seeing high school and what a teen has to go through yeah and to its credit in in that same vein it, it's very much one of my favorite high school movies ever i think oh absolutely. because you, you see this character going through the the making friends process and making enemies losing and gaining romance and just figuring life out so in that respect it's a great film to sort of just put yourself in that high, high school mindset where things can go so right or they can go so wrong in just the blink of an eye really right and I, I mean, I know the the bullies get the dirt bikes and, and some of the cliched stuff, but I really like the how I know it's a cheesy way of saying it, but I really like how organic and non rushed the courtship was between Daniel and and Allie. You know, where it wasn't the most over the top meet cute. It wasn't the most over the top first date. It felt as normal as if you or I would have tried to take a girl out in 1984 like our mom has to drive us to the arcade and the miniature golf course and you know we get a little bit of a montage date but it's not this like yeah it's it's not this grandiose thing it's it's a really lame normal date and yet it was built on getting that chance and the affections they had before they got to that and i just like how it was built you know i the bully parts gets a little cliche here and there but i mean i just liked how daniel and Allie clicked yeah, that romance really was slow burning because, you know, the, the first time they meet is at the summer beach scene the day before school. So presumably late August or something like that. And it's not until December when they have their first kiss. It really is this slow burn. Let, let's play with liking each other. Now we're going through a sort of rough patch or I, I'm trying to avoid you for other social reasons. And uh, finally, there, there's a lot that's working against them. You have the, the social norms, both of economical standing and right. and right. just the high school sort of caste system almost. Lots working against them, but the attraction is attraction, and they are great for each other in the end of it. Right. In, in a different movie, this is like a whirlwind week of summer and not months of growth and change and, you know, and, and also dealing with bullies. You know, this isn't, you know, one tough week in a kid's high school life. This is months of him trying to deal with these, you know, creeps. And, and it's, yeah, I, I like the passage of time here. And I know some of that passage of time feels more legitimate when you're watching the training montages and the things that's that's going on with, with, with Miss Miyagi. But I like the high school aspect having passage of time as well. Definitely. Well, let's talk about some of the characters more specifically. So what about Daniel do you have? Um, I like that that he wants to do I like his vigor. I want like that he wants to do something. I like um uh you know, I know he's kind of bent on the self-defense tough Italian, the blood that he can't turn down in terms of temperature and all that, but I like how especially in his courtship with Allie, the Elizabeth Shoe character, I like um I like his charm. He's always got a great line and a heck of a smile, you know. He he really is you know, he's not the what was me petulant teen all the time. I mean, and when he has, when he's in the tough spot, when he throws that, that bike in the dumpster, when he tries to tell his mom, it's all going bad. Um, it, it's, 
even in his whiny moments, they're not whiny for really selfish reasons. Like he really has been pushed to a brink and he sells the brink. I like that more than just, I don't know, the I can't even teens of today. You know, it's almost a throwback example of, of teen boys that we just don't see anymore. I like that he's far from being a perfect character, too. Totally. He's, he's impatient. He's hot-tempered. He sometimes assumes the worst in people, whether it's Allie sticking to her specific social status or whether it's Mr. Miyagi just using him for chores. <laughs> he 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 has those faults in him. But like you said, he's charming. He, he is respectful in the, the moments when he needs to be, whether it's towards his mother or to Mr. Miyagi or to Ali's parents, what, whatever the occasion is, he, he adapts. And beyond anything else, really, he's hardworking. I don't think the, the climax of this movie would be believable if we weren't able to see how hardworking Daniel is. None of this is handed to him, which I really appreciate. I think a lot of times we see teens in films or even just for the sake of time in films, they get these shortcuts or they get these leg ups or, or just they get good luck. He has plenty of failures and bad luck, which I really enjoy. And um, I mean, I know the good guy wins at the end and all that. But um, but it, like you said, it's not without hard work. It's not without dedication. It's not without kind of the rigor to push himself. And he, and he does a great job selling that. Um I, I I did not dig too deep in history. I wondered I wanted to look up before tonight if um what other actors were considered for the role other than Ralph Macchio and and I'm not digging too deep and finding anything, but um he fit the part of a just a good looking Italian kid and and um like I'm trying to think of other actors of that time and era where it would have been just I don't know if it would have played the same. I'm not sure. Yeah, it is hard to look at something like that in retrospect. And even looking at the the special features on the Blu-ray earlier, I don't know if they mentioned a whole lot about casting decisions. And looking at the Wikipedia page right now, too, uh, it doesn't say anything about Daniel either. But it, it it is interesting to consider who else might have filled that role, especially because Ralph Macchio is really only known for this movie. He made it a couple of other small appearances and stuff like What the Outsiders, I believe, uh-huh. and My Cousin Vinny. In Crossroads, I see. But other than that, this is really the pinnacle Ralph Macchio movie. <laughs> yeah, and it works, you know. What did you think of um, – How? what was your connection and grab for, obviously, the Mr. Miyagi character from Pat Morita? Well, I like that he is slowly revealed throughout the course of the film. You know, at the start, he's just this mysterious old Japanese guy or – you assume Japanese, who's a maintenance man. He, I mean, very unassuming and not much to him aside from the fact that he is Japanese, I suppose. But with Daniel, as he and Mr. Miyagi grow closer, you learn about his connection to his father. You learn that he doesn't like to fight despite knowing how. And then you go through the whole learning about his wife and son thing that we were talking about earlier. And what I latched onto with that beyond just the, the, the Japanese internment part of it in America's history is maybe that's the fact that it took place during World War II might have something to do with why he's so averse to fighting. And the fact that he was close to his father but wasn't able to have a son of his own because of this situation might explain why he latches onto Daniel so much and why he really becomes beyond just a friend and a teacher, a, a surrogate father. Yeah. I'm looking in here on IMDb, and I I find it fascinating that um, Kurosawa legend Toshiro Mifune auditioned for the role, but um, director John Avildsen felt he was too serious for the part and played it too much like the Samurai Warrior. Gosh, I picturing a serious, more serious 
version of that character would be would be interesting to see because I admit I had enough history in my in my book to remember Pat Morita from Happy Days, you know, being a, a silly stereotype. So to see him, I thought it was nice to see him play serious enough, let alone what Toshiro Mifune would have done with that. So that was kind of cool. Um, as I dig deeper, not to circle back and, 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 and cross things up, but um, Charlie Sheen, I see here, turned down the role of Daniel LaRusso. So that is interesting. Good job. Good job, <laughs> Ralph Macchio. I mean, could you imagine Charlie Sheen, up there, you know, I, I can't. I think he would be too 50s greaser. He'd be too tough. Because the Charlie Sheen of that era, I picture as the guy romancing Ferris Bueller's sister in detention, you know. Um, right. Yeah, I, I, that would have, he's almost too old looking. I agree. I'm not the biggest uh, Charlie Sheen fan, especially nowadays. But back then, I, I can't really picture him in the role. It's funny how these classics, we, we see people fill these roles and it's hard to imagine anybody else filling those same shoes. Uh, anything else about Mr. Miyagi? For me, and I know this is getting into themes later, maybe a little bit, but um, Mr. Miyagi on on my ranks, uh, on on editorial and stuff I've written in the past, he's my number one father figure example in all of movies. Where I, I uh, a couple Father's Day ago, I did um, I did a list of top movie fathers, you know, and that's Atticus Finch, that's you know uh, Will Smith in Pursuit of Happiness. But um, I came back after doing that, and I said, you know what? There's a whole bunch of there's a whole another crop of people who are father figures without being fathers. And for me, Miyagi was number one. So um, that's kind of a fun list to think of him about where when it comes to father figures, it, it's like him, Obi-Wan Kenobi, guys like that. And uh, I can't think of anybody better in that department. I, I agree with that. I think the relationship between these two characters, again, because of the pace of the movie and knowing that it covers many months of time, we we first see them interacting, really playing with the bonsai trees and grooming those. And then next thing, it's Halloween and Daniel's still spending time with Mr. Miyagi. So we see that this relationship has been developing. And then from there, later that night, in fact, uh, is when Daniel is jumped and or chased and beat down and Mr. Miyagi intervenes. And that's when their karate student teacher relationship really starts. Great scene in the movie, too, like over the shoulder in the dark figure coming over the chain link fence and it's Mr. Miyagi, you know, great scene too. Love the way they shot that. I, I wish I could remember my first time viewing this movie just so I could remember what my reaction in that moment was. Cause you see it coming, but then you don't see it coming. You're like, wait, is that him? And you know, it's, it just hits so well, you know, you might see it coming, but you don't really know exactly how and how, how well he pulls that scene off where he, he effortlessly takes down five guys. Oh, I know. I think it's also worth noting that Mr. Miyagi teaches Daniel defense and balance before extensively going into the offensive side of things. So maybe something that could be talked about in themes, but just again, his aversion to fighting. Here's how you can defend yourself should anything happen. And we'll get to the the other side of that coin later down the road. And of course, I, I mean, and this is maybe getting the themes as well, but just um, obviously I really enjoyed the the atypical training, you know, where, you know, domestic workouts can lead to moves of other things you know i obviously one of the best scenes in this film is that great reveal of all the crap that daniel thinks he's been going through are the motions and the things he'll need for the real mccoy and um that great reveal scene of of pent-up frustration being released in skill is just played so well by by morita you know where you know listen it's this listen it's this and i love how every time that daniel's repeating one of his moves 
Pat Marino just grabs his wrist right there and goes, no, strong. You know, it just, you know, he's, he's teaching on the fly, on the moment, right there in the spot at the same time that he's revealing these great truths to him. And it's just, I don't know, a perfect scene. That, that is a perfect scene. And uh, I, I think it's also worth pointing out that Pat Morita doesn't talk like Mr. Miyagi in real life. No, not at all. He's got a, a very natural American accent. And uh, people who may not be familiar with him outside of Karate Kid really may not know that. But it, it's really worth pointing out. This is the one award, Academy Award, that this movie was nominated for was Best Supporting Actor for Pat Morita. And it, it's definitely deserved, I think. For this viewing, I turned on for at least a little while. I turned on the the DVD commentary on the copy that I have, and Marita's on it. And you know, I've heard his voice outside of it, but I mean, it definitely you're expecting to hear Miyagi, and you just don't, you know. And it's it's he plays it well. Now, what about Ali? Oh, I see. Like I kind of alluded to earlier, I had a teen, a good teen preteen crush on Elizabeth Shuer. She's just dreamy. A California blonde who's not a California blonde who's smart, intelligent. Um, Elizabeth Shue, you know, studied at Harvard, where you know she's a legit actress. So, um, but she can still she played that age really, really well. Where it wasn't she didn't play it too old. I know she's probably, you know, a twenty-two year old playing a, a, a you know a seventeen year old, but she she's convincing and just has that megawatt smile. I like that she wasn't. I liked all the ways that she bucked the California blonde stereotype by, by, by being a reasonably fully formed character with her own idea of, about things and being a little bit more of a flexible person and not just a, a cliche. And I don't know. What do you think about Elizabeth? Well, she's so smart in this movie and she is so kind. Her, her kindness transcends her social status. And she's really the only rich person in this movie that we don't aren't sort of designed to hate. Even her friends have this sort of standoffish attitude towards Daniel, maybe not because of the the lack of money in his family, but that very well might be a part of it as well. She values being a good person. She talks about how Johnny just thinks he can do whatever he wants and he can go and he could beat up Daniel or he can go and beat up this other kid just because he's top of the class at Cobra Kai. But that's not what she values. She right. she values that Daniel is different than this crowd that she's been hanging around. That maybe his lack of wealth has made him a little bit more humble in his dealings with people and just made him an overall better person. When I watched her, I'm like, gosh, she's really mature at what doing what she's doing. And I had to look it up just now. She's two years younger than Ralph Macchio. And you would have never known her watching the movie. That's for sure. No, you wouldn't have. Um, I also love that her character is a great support system for Daniel. They have their, their fights, but when it matters, she's there by his side, especially at the very beginning when he's made and lost all of these friends at the beach party. She's the one who comes up to him next day and is still trying to at least, at the very least, strike up a friendship and continue this budding romance. No, I mean, I, we, we've talked about it all up to this point, I'm a, that the romance just felt fully formed and genuine and not like not built on teen hormones and sex pot fashion. You know, it was, it was a good, like you said, supportive. I like your word of supportive. That's a good supportive relationship that really grew out of this film. And, and even though she's kind of the, the girl at the end, who's, you know, on the sidelines kind of oohing and on and cheering at every little moment that happens for Daniel in the ring, she's still, she's there and you're glad she's there because of how far she's watched him in, in at least that half of the journey where, that goes together well. Now, what about Johnny? Uh, William Zabka is Johnny. Funny thing is, um, might have my facts wrong, but um, there's a little fun local thing for me here in Chicago. Um, there's a there's a little theater out in the burbs that uh, it's called Hollywood Boulevard, and they it's one of those 
one of the more early renditions of theaters that did like the dining and the and the theater experience at the same time more of a thematic one than what amc does it is a you know factory service now but um they always have these little um screenings all the time where they bring some obscure actor actress in from a particular film like um and one of them years back was was zabka they had they showed karate kid and he was there in attendance to do a q a and stuff like that and it's just fun to and i wasn't there but i mean i i met a buddy that was there and just said how just his fond memories of the film how of course he's completely typecast as that particular role just all those facts where he had a fun thing to kind of look back on and the guy looks like he just grew up from being that guy too. I mean, he looks the same today, which is ageless, you know, quick fun side story for me as well. You know, have you ever watched how I met your mother? No, I'm not a, how I met your mother guy, but I hear he, <laughs> he had a little spot in there. He did. Uh, the, the character Barney Stinson played by Neil Patrick Harris believes that he is the, he as in Johnny, uh, Johnny Lawrence is the main character, the hero of the Karate Kid, and Daniel yeah, LaRusso right. is the bad guy. And how, I can see that playing. Yeah, it, sure. it, it's a really funny side story. And for Barney's bachelor party, William Zabka actually is invited and shows up dressed as a clown. And as as he's wiping the makeup off his face, uh, <laughs> it's a little reveal. Uh, and Ralph Macchio is in that episode as well. Oh, how about that? Yeah, it, it's just a fun little side reveal of how Johnny could maybe be a good guy, but in this movie, he is not so great a guy. You have to put some of that fault on Crease, on his teacher at Cobra Kai. Absolutely. For sure. sure. But I think that is absolving him a little bit too much of really what he should be held responsible for, which is ganging up on Daniel and honestly almost killing him a couple times. Uh, Namely, the, the scene where he pushes him off the side of the road on his bicycle. Mm-hmm. He plays a pretty severe bully. Not so much in a one... I mean, I, uh, I'm stretching if I say it's one-dimensional because I don't think it's as over-the-top and cheesy as other bullies we've seen. I mean, it's plenty, you know, and he's got his cronies behind him and all that. But um, it's more vicious than I remember it being watching it again recently where I'm like, dang, he... Like you said, with the, the, the real danger he puts him in, like, boy, he's really messing him up, so... Yeah, I guess it really speaks towards jealousy, which is really what kickstarts the rivalry is at the beach when he sees Allie and Daniel talking and Daniel being the good guy steps in trying to defend Allie and uh, Johnny won't have it. He he gives Daniel a pretty serious beating and a black eye from it. And I mean, like I said, he's not entirely to blame just because you you do have crease intimidating them all the time Mm -hmm. and he especially becomes more sympathetic after the start of the next film when it takes place immediately after the tournament and crease attacks johnny so you you become a little bit more sympathetic towards him knowing exactly how that particular student teacher relationship played out i'm reading in the notes here where about just um the zapka character where um he, the actor, developed an entire unseen backstory for for Johnny. You know, like many actors do, they're like, well, we're, you know, what are my character's motivations and things like that. And it's almost very similar to Daniel's, where they don't have a father looking for something to achieve and, and help himself out in, and he finds karate. You know, and where the two aren't that dissimilar when they, if they ever were the, you know, to sit down and break some bread and realize that they're the same. You know, so. Just one had a one had a positive teacher, one obviously had a negative teacher, and just the difference is there. Right, and thankfully he does have a little bit of redemption at the end of the film when after being beat by Daniel in the final fight, after really trying to go against what Kreese has told him, Kreese tells him to sweep the leg, and he, he 
doesn't want to. But again, because he's intimidated by his teacher, he does it. But after Daniel still pulls off the victory, he says to the to the trophy presenter, no, let, let me do it. And he, he hands over the trophy and he says, you, you're all right, Daniel. You're all right, LaRusso. Good match. And uh, so it's it's nice when a bully can have a little bit of redemption at the end, even if it's not entirely absolving him. Right. It's the fruition of earned respect too. you know, that it, that is core to the what Daniel's looking for and what he's, you know, even what his teacher's asking for him to hope for. And it, I think it, yeah, it, it's, it's fitting and it really, it really helps out that well. Now, what about Crease himself? Oh, I mean, you get your, you know, your typical over the, you know, gung ho Vietnam vet style person that we've seen before. Obviously, you know, you, you couldn't come up with a better, or you, it's a perfect um, foil compared to Miyagi, you know, a guy who's all talk and, and in in always an angle of you know um self-serving and twisted nature to it and then of course you have Miyagi a man of fewer words and 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 and, and more confident ideals so oh yeah i mean it, you, you you got the yin and the yang with those two for sure and it it's even though, i mean it's played up for for a film you know you're still watching a, essentially a sports film where you're going to have a you know a you know not so much a one-dimensional bad guy but you're going to have a a strong armed bad guy versus the the meek good guy. So they got the right person for that. I mean, that's, that's Rambo too. It's, you know, it's, it's Martin Cove. So yeah. He, he is truly intimidating in this movie. And you especially see how scared his students are of him in the final tournament scene. You know, Bobby Brown is the character in the gang who's tried to show Daniel the most mercy throughout the rest of the film, particularly on that Halloween night. After Johnny throws a punch or two or kick or two, uh, he says, he's had enough, leave him alone. And Johnny, of course, perseveres and says, no mercy. And that's because this guy, Crease has taught no mercy and to strike first, which is a terrible combination. And you see, again, how willing this guy is to possibly seriously injure Daniel. He asks Bobby to take him out of commission so that Johnny wins uncontested. And when he shows up for the final fight anyways, he asks Johnny to sweep the leg. It's insane how little care for other people this guy seems to have. It's all about him and about victory and about really just showing who is stronger. Any of the characters stand out for you? Uh, the only other one I wanted to at least mention was Daniel's mom, just for the simple fact that she's such a mom character. I, I don't really have much to say beyond that. She's a sweet mother. She's nice and she's supportive, just like a mother needs to be. And there, there is a little bit of headbutting when Daniel finally is able to say, listen, this isn't what I wanted. You didn't even ask me what I wanted. And here we are. Here I am getting beat up. But in that scene, you also see exactly how much she cares for him. She reconsiders. She says, you know, I I did do wrong by you. I didn't ask. But since you're here, let's see what I can do to help you. And that's exactly what a mother should be. I think she plays that very well. Question for you. Do you feel like maybe here on repeat viewings, because obviously we've seen it for years here. Do you feel like you needed to know more about the absentee father, like more details of you know, I know it's it's unspoken most of this film. I only, I'm trying to even put my finger on any kind of clue you have to where wherever dad is or isn't in the picture, you know. Um, and I was okay with that because it, that then puts the full focus on Miyagi being the father figure. But I was just, did you need a father? Did you, did you need that spelled out or is it the absence enough? 
I think the absence was enough. I wouldn't have snubbed my nose at a little bit more background information. For all we know, for all I know, at least, there might be a little bit more background in the next two movies. I don't know. I don't remember either. But as far as this one goes, I think that there's obviously a hole there. And Miyagi fills it. Great. He just sort of steps in and he's there for giving him the opportunity to drive a car and for giving him his first car. I mean, and teaching him and beyond just teaching karate, teaching life lessons that you would expect a father figure to teach him. So it's interesting to consider what might have happened to his father and maybe what might have brought this situation onto them, uh, this struggling single mother trying to make life work for them. But for me, I think just having Miyagi there to fill the hole worked for me. What about you? Yeah, same here. Um, I, I I thought about it after the fact. I'm like, no, you know what? I, I got enough where I'm able to just go right to Miyagi, go right to the father figure, not dwell in the past. You know, think about this kid's future, and I, I think they played that well where I didn't need it. It was a thought that crossed my mind, but I, I don't think they needed it. Like Miyagi, having that, that sort of retrospective looking back, he lost his son was close to his father. That's why he's so attached to Daniel is having that his own father son relationship. And for Daniel, the thing that brings that into focus is just the fact that his father isn't there. And obviously isn't there. He wasn't there for the road trip. He's not there living with them at the apartment. And so it, it worked for me. Yeah, same here. Any other characters for you? Oh, uh, no, no, I, I, I'm, I, like you said, I, I noticed those little moments of the Cobra Kai crew kind of breaking away, whether it was, you know, a kid that was over the top, you know, as an adversary, like Chad McQueen's character was, or, but, um, but I, but I noticed the, you know, the mercy that came out of the, of the Bobby character and all that, where I appreciated those. I didn't remember them a lot, but it was still, it was still nice to see, you know, it wasn't just stock. Yes. People behind them. They all had their own little flavor and character note to it, which worked pretty good. Let's move on to talking about music just a little bit. So anything to say first in particular about Bill Conti's score? Oh, I mean, I'm a Bill Conti. I'm a film music guy. I really enjoy it. It's something I gravitate to a lot when I watch a film. And um, me too. It's it's not as, I mean, it's not Rocky from Bill Conti, or it's not you know, it's not woven into the movie and all that. But um, you put that that piccolo on in the in the Daniel solo, you know, training scene on his own at the beach, silhouetted by the sun, trying the crane quick kick and all that. Like the the way that that Conti's work shines up and crescendos there it's a real nice moment in it it's the single track of this soundtrack that i have sitting on the ipod at home where it's it's yeah the beat the 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 daniel solon beach scene the rest of it isn't as thematic and, and thick and, and great because they fill so much of it with with period soundtrack so to speak so i don't know how was county for you well like you said i said the same thing in my notes this isn't rocky this isn't hugely thematic and memorable in the same way but watching it today after not having watched karate kid and i don't know how long several years at least i was able to remember pretty much every beat of the music in the scene it was featured whether it was the travel sequence at the beginning or whether it was daniel avoiding ali or the the end the the big main theme which is at the the victory after daniel has won bleeding into the end credits Heavy use of pan flute throughout, just like you were talking about on the beach scene, which sort of adds a little bit of an air of mystery and brings in this foreign concept of karate and uh, this foreign character of Mr. Miyagi and really sort of, I wouldn't say Americanizes it, but it, it adds that little bit of unknown element or mysterious element to the film. Yeah, there's a fusion and a blend there where, like you said, that pan flute comes in and gives it that 
international, you know, beat or flavor to it, but it's still an American swell of strings and, you know, cause it is Rocky esque at least for that layer where yeah, I think it's a good mix. Now, what about the soundtrack, the, the actual like pop songs that are featured in the film? See, I have to admit, I'm, I've become in my older age now that I'm all right here, dumb story here, but, um, to me, the age in which you stop listening or caring or paying any attention to popular music is 33, and I'm 37 going on 38. So <laughs> current music is lost on me. You can name most artists, and I just don't know who they are, nor do I care. But at the time, like I said, I grew up, grew up a gravel country boy, so my mother and parents never listened to this kind of 80s music at all. You know, um, If I caught it, it was through friends or something in school. So I'm not a super-duper music connoisseur in this kind of way where, I mean – you know, the you're the best song was the one I remember, but all the other stuff that I noticed more watching the movie again, like, gosh, there's a whole bunch of 80s tunes in here. You know, I, I've learned to appreciate afterwards, but I, I definitely didn't have the tape playing in my in my bad earphones on a boombox at home. What about you? Well, like you, I'm not super familiar with the artists of today. I do prefer older music. That being said, this film, there are so many songs in this movie that I associate with this movie, whether it's Bananarama's Cruel Summer or uh, Bop Bop on the Beach, which is, of course, the beach song, uh, The Ride, which is the song that plays, I think, during the bike chase scene. And then the big one is You're the Best, which is funny because that song was actually written for Rocky Three, oh. And uh, Sylvester Stallone turned it down in favor of I the Tiger by Survivor, and Survivor ended up singing the quote-unquote main theme of this movie, which is the moment of truth. You hear it in the end credits. And Bill Conti wrote the music part of both of those songs. So, How about that? Yeah. Those songs in particular, especially Cruel Summer, I think, if I hear that song in any random situation, I'm always going to think of Karate Kid. It's just, <laughs> it was probably my earliest, that's probably the first way I heard the song, to be honest, was as a little kid watching Karate Kid. So much of this movie is focused on the actual soundtrack, and that, that's what sticks out to me as far as music goes. Bill Conti is great, and I love the moments where his music is featured, but at the end of the day, I sort of walk away more with, especially, you're the best. Absolutely. Yeah, the the soundtrack wins over the score here, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, well, we just watched Baby Driver, and you just watched it as well, where you know I don't remember Price's score from Baby Driver. I remember all the kick butt tunes that are on the soundtrack. So, no, I think I think a good film can can move and groove with a soundtrack without so you know with the score being secondary, and this is definitely one of them. Yeah, I agree. And uh, another one that is a big summer film and a coming of age film, The Way Way Back. I love that film's soundtrack as well. Nice soundtrack choices there, yeah. Anything else to say about the music? No, no, no. You, you, you hit that home run of the park better than I did on that one. Okay, great. Let's move on to our relevance section. Uh, so themes, takeaways. What, what is it that you leave this film with at the end of the day? Oh, man. I leave this film with um, you know, t- t- typical me with life lessons. Um, the father figure aspect for sure is huge. I take away the – I hate to call old-fashioned because I know there's kids that still work hard today, but – the, the antiquated sense of hard work to earn something, the hard work to earn respect, hard work to earn a girl, hard work to earn a skill and all that, where I really appreciated the, the elbow grease and the, and the blood and sweat and the tears they had to come out of, you know, this kid trying to just achieve his goals, to say it like that way. So those themes for me speak out the most. When you put that against American values, I like to think that 
we are a country built with more people like Daniel who are willing to work hard and people like Pat who are willing to show people how to work hard than we are with Crease and with, with, with Johnny, you know, who just take things by force and run and push things by force, I should say. And um, I like to think that there are more Mr. Miyagi's and more Daniels in this country than there are people who just take, you know, obviously the headlines are made by people who, take more than people who earn you know bad news leaves more than good news but um yeah those two things the father figure and the hard work those are both reasons why i wanted to pick this film for our fourth of july special episode just because it it is what i sort of think of when i think america beyond the flag and beyond the soldiers of it all which are great I, i focus on this is what it means to be american this is American, the American dream in particular is about chasing your dreams and about pushing yourself hard and working hard to achieve them. So both of those on my list, I also have the idea of having a friendship and support systems, especially not being limited to your immediate peers. Mr. Miyagi is a father figure, but he's also a friend. Daniel straight up tells him in the film, you're the best friend I ever had. And of course, Mr. Miyagi responds, you pretty okay too. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a believable relationship and it's a strong relationship. And then you look at his relationship with his mother and with Allie, they're strong advocates for Daniel as well. And the three of them make this great support system for Daniel who is going through tough times. He's gone through a move. He's going through bully troubles. He, he's just struggling to fit in. And these three people are sort of his rocks throughout the whole process and the people he can lean on when times are tough. Do you feel like, because this is 1984, do you feel like these themes or these things that we're talking about that are uh, relevant takeaways, do you feel like they ring as true and as sound as they do today as they did in 84? Can a teen now pick this movie up and go, dang, that was really good and it's a motivating thing? Or are they like, oh gosh, what a time capsule and how lame is this? I was particularly thinking of how well this film has stood the test of time while watching today. It's very clearly branded in the 80s, uh, especially by the music, but I don't think it feels dated in any way. I think the, the values are still there and I think that you can take away the same lessons as kids back in 1984 did so i i, I don't think so too. I, I yeah i think it, it stands the test of time great what age do you feel like would be the most ideal place for a kid to watch a film like this like uh, content wise it's it's pretty squeaky clean in terms of things compared to pg-13 movies of today but like what age would you say would you put a young boy down in front of a movie like this I would maybe think maybe age eight at the minimum. There is some language stuff, so it just depends on how willing you are to have your kid hear those words, especially coming from Daniel himself. But maybe even more ideally in the 12 to 15, 16 bracket, just because that's when students are transitioning into middle school and leaving behind their very oldest childhood friends in favor of sort of gearing towards that that career path. Middle school is when you start picking your electives and deciding what way you want to go in life. So I think that that's probably the more ideal age for consuming this. My thinking too. I'm with you there. Is there a companion piece film you would take from today to match with this? Like as a double feature for somebody, would you go like to the way, way back, something like that? Well, the way, way back is my current favorite coming of age film. So I, I, I don't know how well they, they pair together, but they both feature similar themes of, 
Well, I guess they they do prayer pretty well. You've got this kid who's with his mother, who's in a absentee father, right? Uh, absentee father, and you've got the surrogate relationship with Owen uh, via Sam Rockwell's character at the water park, and this kid just trying to fit in. So I guess they they do pair pretty well, to be honest. Yeah. How did you feel about the the new version, which probably should have stayed Kung Fu Kid and not called itself the Karate Kid? How would you think of the Jackie Chan one years back? Honestly, I don't remember it. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. I own it, but Me too. I, I only watched it the one time, and it was because I owned it. I think it was actually the very first Blu-ray I owned because uh, it was a Christmas gift that came along with my PS3 or PS4 uh, as a Blu-ray <laughs> player. Go. So, yeah, I, 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 I wish I could say more than I don't remember, but I really don't. I don't think I hated it. Maybe it was ne- unnecessary, but... Yeah, it's a story that probably... Like you said, because the themes are so good and can hold up even though it's 80s movies, whatever, you know, it probably was unnecessary. But I, I tell you what, I, I don't think it did it. I don't think it did it wrong. I really appreciated watching um, Jackie Chan, you know, play a mature mentor role and not just the silly Jackie Chan over the top action stuff that we don't tend to do. Like he did a pretty darn good version of that mentor role that Miyagi was where it was, you know way less jokes far more drama more heft more emotionality where it was good i don't think jane smith can hold a torch to ralph macchio but uh i know it was a debate on i think i'll even give the plug out you know it was a good debate on the feelings film page the other day where i don't mind the new one at all but i mean it's nowhere close to this but um i think also it can be a similar companion piece if you need to put two things together and and, and have fun to compare a little bit yeah, I was looking earlier, Roger Ebert in particular, who's always been my favorite film critic for many, many reasons, but he rated the original Karate Kid four out of four stars, and he gave the, the remake, I think, three and a half. So sure. if you want to take Roger at his his opinion, he likes both films. So I tend to take Roger at his opinion. Yes. I got to meet him once. That was pretty darn cool. I was cool. going to ask you that earlier because you both worked in Chicago, so that's very cool. It was young in my – I'll make this story as fast as I can. Um, I got some press credentials before I had standing press credentials to go see an early screening of uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the would be the third Narnia movie. And um, my wife and I – I got a plus one, so my wife and I got to go. We get to go, to, we get to go downtown. We took the train. We took a bus. We, we really fought to get there. We were late getting there. And it was one of those movies where they had to, like, check your cell phones at the door outside the theater So I, because it was one of those screenings. So – I, I did that and I'm walking in the movie in the dark and I'm trying to sit down, just trying to find any two seats I can find. Didn't care where I was. It's dark. I can barely see. I sit down and my wife comes in a little bit after me because she's like, go get in there, take notes, be ready. You know, completely supportive wife. She comes back in, whispers in my ear, tugs in my shirt, whispers in my ear. She's like, Roger Ebert's in here somewhere because his wife is in the lobby. We kind of wait, hanging out, waiting for him. I was talking to her because we were going in. I'm like, Roger Ebert's here. I'm like, shucks. You know, I wouldn't, I didn't thought nothing of it. And sure enough, I look in the seat. I kind of, it kind of rubberneck around a little bit, like thinking, oh, I bet I can find it and see him. He's in the seat to my left. We are sharing an armrest. And I'm like, oh, that is so good. <laughs> and I just like, and at, for, at first I'm like, oh, and then my second thing was, crap, I'm probably this jerk who came in late to a movie. And I, I, what do I do? I plopped on next to the master. So um, <laughs> I'm like, I got to be in this guy's way. He discreetly, we didn't talk after the film. He, it was later in his life where he couldn't talk. Right. So um, he kind of went on his merry way when the credits hit and he was gone. But uh, it was kind of cool to just say I got to sit next to Roger Ebert and watch a movie. So That is amazing. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It was, and I, that was um, 
like I said, those years before I ever got real press credentials were now, um, now I'm there two days a week doing stuff on the same level as they are. And it's, it was fun, but that's, that's my Roger Ebert story. That's for sure. Well, I, I've got to say, I am just a little bit jealous. He He's always been sort of my oh, ideal for film criticism yeah. is looking at films and really seeing what they are, like truly seeing a film and understanding a film and looking at my life experiences and using those as a basis to compare the film to and what I can take away from it. So that's awesome. You have a current guy you like now or a guy or gal? Not really one in particular. I, I He was always the one I went to and I just haven't bothered finding one to go to since. Uh, yeah, me, me too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you read his autobiography just since we're on the subject? No, I have not. I need to. Need to, need to, need to. It's good. I haven't watched the the film that was based on it, but the, the book is great. It's definitely on the on the to-do list for sure. Before we wrap this discussion, I realized I had just a couple more quick notes on takeaways from the film. So like Rocky, I mean, this is very much in a lot of ways, Rocky with karate instead of boxing, uh, because oh, yeah, it's, it's an underdog story. And it's no coincidence that the same guy directed both films. But unlike Rocky, he wins. But like Rocky, it almost doesn't matter. It's about going the distance. It's about proving that you can stand toe to toe. If he lost that last match to Johnny and Johnny still shows him respect and hands him a second place trophy with, with renewed appreciation, it'd be just fine. Now people would have called it a repeat of Rocky, but um, I'm with you. It, it, it plays, it works. And it's also about beyond just going the distance to, to get there. You have to give your all uh, before he starts the training. Mr. Miyagi gives the, the story about, walking on the right side of the road, on the left side of the road, or walking down the middle of the road. And how if you're going to say you're going to do something, you have to dedicate yourself fully. You have to say you're going to do karate or you're not going to do karate. If you go halfway down the middle, things aren't going to go the way you need them to. So uh, that was another big takeaway for me. It's been interesting to try to compare this film in years since because it, you know, it makes that list for sure of you know, it's always on the short list of best sports films. It's always on the list of best underdog films. It's always on the list of, of things like that and, and coming of age and, and father figure stuff where when I think about on barometer wise, like how modern ones can even hold a torch to some of these films, because until Creed came around two years ago, I hadn't seen a, a really good interpretation of, of a of an underdog boxing movie in quite a while. I know every boxing movie ends up being an underdog movie, but they, I felt like they just kept recycling cliches. And here comes Creed recycling a cliche, but doing it really, really, really well, where I don't know if I've seen a karate kid comp since, you know, in, in the, this realm of sports, you know, I mean, warrior is really good for UFC or for, for that kind of fighting, but it's, it's not the growth that this movie is by any means. And, when I'm reading your question here in the notes of has it affected your taste in other movies? It has like, you know, these films and Rocky thanks to the work of Avildsen have made not just sports movies, but underdog stories on a level that I haven't seen other underdog stories get to yet. Do you have underdog movies that are close up there with this? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. If, if somebody says underdog to me, it's probably a 50-50 chance of me saying this one or Rocky first, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I, I think if there's a close, now that at top of my head, close third, Rudy. Ru- okay. Rudy's pretty darn uh-huh. good, but yeah. Any final thoughts about Karate Kid before we close off? 
Um, I'll throw a thought about uh, the director, John Avildsen. Um, one more film on his resume that I really like because um, even though it compares thematically to Rocky in this, but it's a true story, is um, I really like Eight Seconds with uh, Luke Perry as the Rodeo Cowboy, uh, Lane Frost, where uh, real nice story. I mean, it has obviously the Rocky vibe to it because it's Appleton and it feels a lot like this, but I, I liked that that was a true story version of some of the same things he does well. Cool. I'll have to add that to the list for sure. I'm looking at it right now on Wikipedia. Yeah. If you like his style of films, it, it's it's Appleton and it's it's uplifting and pretty darn good without, without shying away from much like Rocky and much like Karate Kid. The, the ugly side of, of, of that hard work or, or the peaks and valleys of it all. So it, it plays well. Well, I think that wraps up our discussion and is the end of the official 49th episode of Cinescope. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. Uh, what film is up for episode 50? Uh, that is going to be Back to the Future Part 3. Ooh, excellent choice. Which I'm very excited for because that is the correct second best Back to the Future film. I agree with you on that. Good, good. I'm glad you do. <laughs> I have some friends who I've argued with many times over the correct order oh, of Back to the gosh, Future, and it is yep. one, three, two, as any it good Back one, to the three, Future two. fan knows. Totally agree. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that next week. Good stuff. Contact for the show, facebook.com slash podcast and at pod on Twitter. Remember, if you want to be entered into the giveaway, all you have to do is rate and review on iTunes. And if you want to subscribe while you're at it, just click the button, even if you don't use iTunes. And or if you don't want to do that, if you don't use iTunes, you can go to Facebook and Twitter, share the show, tag the show. And that way I see that you are entering the giveaway. So you do those. If you win, grand prize gets two movies that we've talked about on the show. Second and third place get one movie each that we talked about on the show. And you pick the movie, you pick the format. So if you're interested in that, make sure to enter. And if you have feedback and ideas, you can email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And also if you're interested in co-hosting, I've gotten a few submissions recently of people who are interested in being on the show and talking about a movie they love. And if you'd like to do the same, make sure to contact me there. Um, and I do want to plug one quick other thing real quick. Don, you mentioned that I saw Baby Driver recently, and I did. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw it with our friends over at Feel and Film, Aaron and Patrick. We met up at a sort of halfway point for us since Aaron is down down south for a cruise he just went on this past week. And we watched the movie together, and then we went to a Starbucks, and we propped up a microphone, and we recorded an episode live from Starbucks to talk about Baby Driver. So I will put a link to that in the show notes if you want to go check it out. I cannot wait to listen to that show. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I bet it's hilarious. It's the second time I've actually met somebody from podcasting, and uh, every time it's always a complete delight because movies and podcasting brings us together. This is a weird little world where you and I have never met, you know, um, who knows if we ever will, but it's just fun where through social media, through these shows, through the love of movies, we all kind of have a commonality where something tells me if we were to ever meet, it'd be just two guys hanging out talking about movies, it'd be easy, easy as can be. It definitely would be. And so if I'm ever in the Chicago area, I will make sure to hit you up. Please do. Please do. Now, where can people find your work online? Sure. Um, main website is everymoviehasalesson.com. You can search everymoviehasalesson.com on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. You'll find my things there. Um, I've been working on something on YouTube where I kind of take my reviews that I, I read them out loud, but at the same time I do kind of a, an interactive whiteboard kind of sketches and drawings and notes at the same time as my 
work is being read to you where it's kind of, I call it the movie classroom because it's kind of an educational app where you can do math problems and things like that. But I use it to write movie stuff at the same, or little pop-up video stuff at the same time as wherever you go. So that's my YouTube thing where I'm kind of trying to kick that into gear a little bit. It's just something different, a different way to digest my work. But um, everymoviehaslesson.com, um, if you want to see more people that are similarly inclined to me from the Chicago area. Um, I have to plug my people. The Chicago Indie Critics org is uh, the Chicago Independent Film Critics Circle, and uh, you'll find good podcasters and good work there if you're if you're just searching for other people and all that. So that's the easiest place to find me. Excellent. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C H A D A D A D A, and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes and all the contact information can be found at the CinescopePodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Happy Fourth of July, everyone. And uh, thank you, Don. It's been awesome talking to you on the show for the first time. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I, um, thank you for the short notice. Thanks for thinking of me. And uh, um, good luck on show number 50. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 49. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 50. Have fun and celebrate movies. Mm-hmm.